0: Good evening, and welcome to Straight from the Shack with Dart. Tonight, I'm reading Moments of Impact by Tom Wilson. Another beginning. When I got out of the hospital, I was anxious to start living my life again. Little by little, I was happy to be out of the hospital, but I wanted to do more. I was ready to see my coworkers and a wider circle of friends again. I wanted to go out and do some Christmas shopping by, my, by myself. I was in a rush to get back to normal life. I wanted to put this difficult chapter of my life behind me. My progress was good, but things did not happen overnight. It would still be a couple of weeks before I was able to hold the steering wheel of a car and drive. My parents were great and helped me through this phase of my recovery. I quickly became—I quickly came to resent the pressure therapy mask and gloves, especially the mask. They were important and served a purpose, but the mask in particular was uncomfortable and restrictive. My skin couldn't breathe through the rigid plastic, which caused me to sweat. Despite the fact the mask had been molded specifically to my face, pressure was not applied evenly. Some spots would rub more than others and hurt. I became so frustrated with it that one day I took a large metal file to the mask and ground down the edges around my mask, my eyes, to make it more comfortable. I knew the therapist wouldn't be happy about what I had done to the mask, but I didn't care. It was less painful to wear. The sharp edges no longer drove the skin around my eyes. The mask also brought some emotional challenges and unwanted attention. After all, it was a full mask. Even if it was clear, everywhere I went, people would do a double take or just stare. Now, I must admit, it's not the type of thing you see every day, a guy walking around in a clear, full face mask in public. The mask started at my chin and was molded all the way up my entire face, my forehead and the top of my head. The clear plastic at the top reflected light like a beacon. It had the same effect as a shiny bald head, but the clear plastic was unnatural, making me stand out even more. The constant looks made me uncomfortable and self-conscious. I tried to find some kind of solution to make myself stand out less in public. The best I could come up with was an old-style fedora hat, large enough to cover the top of my head and reduce the bright reflection. In retrospect, this was probably not the best solution. The hat did reduce the glare from the top of my head and made the mask less noticeable, but now as a guy wearing black gloves, plastic mask on his face, and a weird old hat. One evening when I was able to drive again, I borrowed my parents car to go to a mall and do some shopping. I was getting used to the stairs and thought I could handle it. When I looked down, when we look down from our own eyes, it's sometimes hard to see ourselves as different. On my list of things to shop for was a bracelet to replace the old one I had lost in the crash. I didn't really think about the effect of walking into a jewelry store wearing a mask and gloves. It got everyone's attention right away. The staff quickly realized I was not a robber or a threat, but they still avoid serving me. They brushed me off when I tried to approach them for assistance. My short time in that store was another moment of impact. I never felt like such an outcast as I did that evening. I was in a crowded shopping mall, surrounded by people, and yet felt very isolated and alone. I left the store, headed straight for the car, and broke down crying. At this point in my life, it is fair to say that I still had some emotion fragility, but I'm not going to to let myself off the hook that easy. There was something bigger to learn from this. I didn't think anyone intentionally tried to hurt me or feel bad. I accepted that, even if I forgot from time to time that I did look different from the average person. Maybe some people assumed I was some kind of freak who chose to wear an old mask. But I think most people did understand why I was dressed the way I was. Either way, very... Every stare hurt, even for a grown man. I was out of the hospital, but not done learning lessons. This part of my journey really helped me to understand how it feels to be different or discriminated against. I have an entirely new understanding of how people with physical abnormalities, kids who look awkward, or people who have different cultural norms must feel at times. I learned to do a better job of treating others as normal people they are on the inside and do my best to look past physical differences the old go the old saying that goes sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me i think it's a time when we park that old saying words even stares can be just as hurtful as physical pain The weeks ahead were full of hard work, continued physiotherapy, small achievements, reconnecting with friends and loved ones, everyone that would let me love them. It was hard to try and come through this as a better person, but I felt that the hard work was paying off. I gradually gradually met with all my friends, co-workers and relatives who wanted to see me. With each get-together, there were tears of sorrow for lives lost, tears tears for the simple joy... And appreciation of life. It was amazing how grateful I was for everything and how ev- and everyone in my life. The days were not emotionally easy but I was getting through them one at a time. Four months after the crash I returned to work. As expected it was a little awkward at first. We were all close at Kewitt, so many of my co-workers were more like friends. Only the closest of them made me comfortable enough to talk about the crash. Most of my co-workers were glad to see me but really didn't know what to say. It was a difficult subject for most people, and was avoided for the most part. I was okay with it. I didn't know what to say to them either. I initially told Kiet I was no longer willing to travel as part of my job responsibilities. The company was very understanding and restructured my responsibilities to avoid travel a few months later when a remote when a remote project failed an audit for financial reporting, I felt compelled to go help out. I volunteered to travel to the site, but only temporary to do an assignment. When the assignment was complete, I further volunteered to be assigned to the project full time to assist the site team with making necessary corrections. I knew that someone else would take over, but it was time for me to get back at what I was good at. The emotional stress associated with travel was decreasing. Life was returning to normal, and soon I was back to the 10 days on, 4 days off rotation, working in a remote camp in northern Alberta. While I was getting more comfortable with the idea of frequent travel, there was one condition I could not waver on my unwillingness to fly. Each rotation, I made a 6-hour drive to and from the site in my car. A few months after I took the position at the remote site, I had lunch with my parents on one of my days off. I was surprised at what they said to me that day. Over lunch, they told me they were happy and relieved that the crash had not changed who I was. They went on to tell me that they were afraid that the crash would make me afraid of life, afraid of who I was and do what I was good at, afraid to travel, even even if that is what I needed to do in order to advance my career. I'd always been passionate about my career and they didn't want me to see didn't want to see me lose that i thought they would be upset that i had back was back to full steam and working remotely but they weren't they were relieved and i that i was still the man before the crash maybe even perhaps a little improved due to a new appreciation appreciation for life and the true value of our time on earth with each other the lunch conversation with my parents that day was a moment of impact for me it felt like a cornerstone in my recovery. The conversation caused me to pause and reflect on the great deal of lessons the crash had brought my and had made me a better person. I was doing my ongoing best to be conscious of those lessons and to continue learning from some of them, but still felt something was missing. I, c- I came to the conclusion that I might never understand why I had survived but I kept searching for something more. My lessons and growth were far from over. In the years ahead, a series of unanticipated events helped me set out on a new journey. Hollywood comes calling. Two years after the crash, life had returned to normal. I was still assigned to the same remote, remote project in Northern Alberta and was once again fully focused on my career. I was home for the Christmas holidays when the phone rang. The person at the other end of the line introduced himself as Philip, a producer for a film company in Los Angeles, and he asked me if I was Tom Wilson who had been the sole survivor of a plane crash on November of 2008. I was a little uncertain about the legitimacy of the call and it seemed a little strange coming out of the blue years after the event. At this point, I'd never spoken to anyone in the media. Even though I felt a little uneasy with this call, the passage of time had made me a little more comfortable to speak about what had happened. So I told him I was the person he was looking for. <clears throat> Philip went on to tell me that the company, his company had struck a deal with Discovery Channel to produce a series of TV shows on unusual survival stories. He had read a number of articles relating to our crash, and was interested in my unlikely survival. He also commented on the fact that he could not find any interviews with me and asked me why that was. I told Philip about my dislike for media sensationalism and the manner in which my family had been treated when I was in the hospital. I also told him that my recovery had been a very personal time for me and the media was interested in talking to me. I wasn't interested in talking to them. As our conversation went on, I learned the program was going to be called Soul Survivor and that the production company wanted to share my story in the first episode. Philip asked if I could tell him my story. I wasn't going to share details with a stranger, but I gave him a brief summary of what happened. He started pushing for me more details, but must have recognized that he intruded too far on my privacy for our first conversation. And turned the conversation back to the proposed TV show. He told me to give, he told me to give the idea some thought, talk it over with my family, and let him know if I was interested. I politely took his number and promised I would get back to him. The thought of having my survival story as the first episode on a program on the Discovery tra- Channel was intriguing and a little exciting, but as I gave it more thought, I quickly turned against the idea. I remembered the sensationalism of the media during the first initial crash coverage and imagined this experience would be no different. Besides, I didn't know if I wanted to tell my story to the whole world. I started thinking about the families of the men that died and how they would feel about this show. It got confusing very quickly. I decided to take this decision to my family and closest friends to ask for their thoughts and perspective. I knew that talking about it with them would help me make a choice. I think I wanted them to vote against it. To my surprise, that was not the case. Both friends and family thought that doing the Discovery TV show was the right thing to do. My family thought it could be a way for me to share my story and inspire others to persevere going through difficult times. Jody, a close friend and mentor from Cuit, was supportive and thought it was a good way for me to share my story with all those who wanted to know what happened that day but were not comfortable enough to ask me. There were many people who had been affected by the crash and I'd only shared details with my friends and closest of family and closest of friends. After weighing all the pros and cons, I decided in favor of the program to share some of the details that day with those who'd want to know what happened. With the decision to proceed made, I called Philip back to let him know that I was on board to shoot the program. A few days later, I had a conference call with Philip, the the episode director, and a number of writers from the production company. At the end of the call, they wanted to schedule me for a trip to California studio on-camera interview. This all seemed to be happening very fast, and I had some reservations about being interviewed. I shared my concerns about the media sensationalism and that the story be accurate. I also insisted that all died be honored and respected in the program they told me they would shoot the program based on my story they would retain all the rights to editing before release I would have no say in the final product the production company was asking me to put a lot of trust in them they reassured they assured me that they had a good reputation and the program was for a reputable network Philip also made it very clear I would receive no compensation for this no one was to say that they bought me to say anything particular. They they wanted the honest truth. I was having second thoughts about proceeding, so I did some research on the production company before agreeing to go ahead. I was going to have to get on a plane to fly to Los Angeles for a day of interviews, which was a bit scary for me. My travel was booked shortly after, and this decision was final. I had no idea what to expect. But I was excited about going to California and seeing the inside of a real production company. I have to admit that prior to going to California, I let my imagination go a little, which probably affected my expectations. I envisioned a nice flight in a grand hotel. I imagined the big studio and comfortable set. The experience turned out to be nothing like I had imagined. My flight and hotel were booked with economy in mind. I arrived at the studio courtesy of the studio receptionist in her personal vehicle. The studio was in fact an office building in an average part of town. At the office of the production company, everyone seemed very busy and the office seemed a little disorganized. I stood alone at the front desk just long enough to begin feeling unimportant. Eventually a man and woman came over to introduce themselves. They were pleasant enough, but they were obviously rushed. They explained that we would need to get the interview started to avoid running out of time before my return flight that afternoon. I was led to another large empty room with only a folding table in the corner. I was given a blue golf shirt and asked to change into it. It would be better with the camera and lights. After changing my shirt, I was immediately led to the interview room. A relatively small and windowless storage room, with thick black curtains attached to the walls. There were a couple of chairs beside some very bright lights and a camera pointed at a steel, single steel chair in the middle of the room. The setting was not comfortable or welcoming at all. Again, not what I expected. The entire experience to this point was unimpressive. I started to think that this was a low-rate production company. This uncertainty Uncertainty affected my attitude and I could feel myself becoming short and uncooperative as the interview began. After failing at some initial tense questions and answers, the directors suggested that I just tell my story in my own words. When I started to tell my story, I was still a little frustrated and had my guard up. Talking without interruptions allowed me to get more comfortable and into a natural flow. I talked nonstop for what seemed like a couple of hours. While telling the entire story, the director called for a short lunch break before regrouping to attempt a question and answer period again. I found the morning retelling emotionally and exhausting. I was tired and needed a break. After a quick sandwich, I headed out to the front of the building to be alone. I was still a little uncertain if I was doing the right thing. Back in the interview room after lunch, the director said he was going to ask questions once more to get different shots of me answering the questions. He also explained that if I answered questions more than once, I was likely to remember details about what happened. His first question was, can you describe what it felt like to wake up on fire? I surprised he went straight to such a difficult question, but I was in a good state of mind, so I did my best to answer. He continued to ask difficult questions, like, how did you feel when you realized that everyone else was dead? He repeatedly asked me questions about different parts of the story, but kept going back to how it felt to be on fire. The afternoon shooting became unpleasant and frustrating very quickly. I'd already shared every detail and didn't want to keep going over these difficult memories. Having to answer the same difficult question over again and again started to make me angry a short while into the afternoon session on about the fifth time the director asked me to describe being on fire I lost my temper with an angry scowl on my face I raised my voice and replied what the fuck is it exactly that you don't understand about how it feels to be on fire from the last time 10 times I explained it to you I was visibly upset and decided that the interview was over Even though they tried to be gentle with me, I was snappy. I asked for my shirt back, changed on the spot, and walked out of the room. I needed to get outside for a break and be alone for a while. None of this experience matched my expectations. It felt like I had just been interrogated rather than interviewed. I had a feeling the director had pushed me hard with questions to bait me and try and prompt more emotion from me during the interview my dislike for media sensationalism resurfaced. I was concerned that this show might turn out to be more of an information than retelling facts of what actually happened. The director had succeeded in stirring up old emotions in me and I thought about it as a shitty thing to do. I just openly shared my personal story all day with strangers in front of a camera and a blinding light with no say or control over the final product. Would they respect the lives, the memories, and the families of those who perished? I gathered myself the best I could and headed back up to the reception's desk. As soon as I walked into the office, the director and his assistants came over to me right away. They shook my hand and genuinely thanked me. They said that I had told my story very well and they would do a great job of reacting the entire thing. They seemed like different people than the ones I had just left behind in the so-called interview room. They told me that they would have their psychologist and air crash experts interviewed as well and that they would do a very accurate reenactment of the crash based on what I told them. At this point, I had to trust these people. There was nothing else I could do. Shortly after that, we said some polite goodbyes and I was on my way back to the airport. The experience of shooting a TV show in Los Angeles was over and was nothing like I had anticipated. I had finally broke my silence with the media and started to regret the decision to do the show at all. I was disappointed with the entire experience and I felt used. I tried to push the whole experience out of my mind, but it continued to bother me. I wanted the program to be accurate, tasteful, and professional. If any of the families of the men who died in the crash watched the program, I wanted them to know that it was all over very fast with no suffering. All I could do was wait and hope that the director and production company kept the word. Thank you for joining Straight from the Shack with Dart as I read from Moments of Impact with Tom Wilson. Till next time, be safe.